We are going to jump into the sermon, and I'm really excited for the text that we're going to be in. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is our second week of Advent, this season when the church has historically celebrated, paused, reflected on the miracle of the incarnation when God became flesh. And look at what the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and at last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then... It is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, in fact, it, but, he, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Let's pause there. There's so much more we could read in that chapter, but I want to invite us to pray, and I want to dive in to this really important passage. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this second week of Advent where we get to pause and reflect on the miracle of the Incarnation when you became a fully alive human being. You never ceased to be God but you also became fully human. And in that act, you changed everything. So Lord, give us hearts to hear your word. Holy Spirit, speak, glorify Jesus, reveal him. Father, may we love you more and more today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, they once asked a a very seminal missionary um, over the last 200 years, if you ask Uh, If you do some research and try to find out who are some of the most influential missionaries or theologians or thinkers, this one name will come up, Leslie Newbegin. And this man, he spent quite some time preaching Christ in India. 
And it was a complicated learning journey for him because imagine he's preaching Christ. He's preaching uh, a monotheistic faith in India, which is quite polytheistic. There are so many gods. And it was from his findings and his writings that he actually helped inform the church in the West, in our part of the world, in profound ways. They once asked him if he was an optimist or a pessimist. How many know what an optimist is? Optimist, good. Most of you know what an optimist is. Hopefully the room is filled with many optimists. Optimists are people who see the glass half full. They see potential. They see possibility. They're hopeful. They don't, they don't, their first lead into a situation is not being grim or being dismal or not having a positive outlook. They see the best. They hope for the best. They work for the best. But the opposite of an optimist is what? A pessimist. Now, a pessimist is the absolute opposite. They engage in a situation and they see what can go wrong. They see what is wrong. They see what's missing. They see the possible eventuality of something going awry. If you're an optimist, you probably have some pessimists in your life that you can't stand. But if you're a pessimist, you probably have some optimists in your life that are hard to relate with because it's like everything can't be positive. Everything can't be hopeful. They asked Leslie Newbigin, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And his response was this, I am neither. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. <laughs> said, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Why? Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And if you unpack the kernel of truth in that statement, it's quite profound because we as followers of Jesus should be optimists because we believe in the God who emptied the tomb of his son. We believe that death doesn't have the final word, that there is resurrection, that there is hope, that there is victory, that there is overcoming power. But we believe that in the context of a gory, bloody cross, of suffering, of pain, of betrayal, of hurt, of angst. And so neither optimism or pessimism fully captures who we are, but... Jesus rising from the dead does. See, the hope of the gospel that we cling to is that God is making something new out of this material stuff in our world. And this new thing is coming out of this old thing, and both are held in tension. Optimism, pessimism, but both are held in tension in God proclaiming the final note, resurrection. Life. And you may be looking at me today as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate Advent, the coming of Jesus into this world, and saying, Chris, are you confused with your calendar because you're reading a text to us that should be read on Resurrection Sunday? <laughs> this seems like a weird text to be reading during Christmas Advent season where we celebrate not the resurrection, but we celebrate the incarnation. But it's intentional why we're reading this text because for us as followers of Jesus, we celebrate this season with the end in mind. It's almost like we are coming in at the end of the party, informing the beginning of the party and saying, this is why you should celebrate God becoming a full human being and entering, entering into this world. 
we celebrate that because it's connected to God breaking death, overcoming sin, destroying the enemies of humanity through this resurrection. And so we celebrate Advent from the empty tomb. And why is that important? Because if you look at history, there were many messiahs that came. They were pseudo-messiahs. We, they, they proved to be false messiahs. And here's one thing that all those false messiahs and our true messiah have in common. They were all born. But not all of them rose from the dead. Only one rose from the dead. And so we celebrate the birth of Jesus by coupling it with the miracle of the resurrection because it makes his birth all that more astonishing, the fact that we are celebrating the God King who became a man and one day was crucified and after that crucifixion was risen from the dead. And we take that kind of framework and we read the story of God from Genesis to Revelation with this in mind. That our God is creating something new. He's redeeming and he's transforming the old. And that you and I, what we are, in essence, we are resurrection people that still live in a broken world. And so we're like kind of in between. We are in a broken world declaring to a broken world that God is making all things new. And we point to the empty tomb and say, what he did there, he's doing in us now. And he'll do for all of us and all of this. But we stand in the middle of that. And so because resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus is such a cornerstone of our faith, it becomes incredibly appropriate to reflect on Advent, on the incarnation of God becoming a human being in light of the empty tomb for this reason. The end verifies the beginning. The end verifies the beginning. What do I mean by that? If you're not familiar with church history, for the first several hundred years, there were big debates among the church. And these debates they were settled in what we understand as creeds. So have you ever heard of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed? You know why those creeds were necessary? Because there were junctures in church history where there were big debates about core doctrinal issues, and the church leaders would come together, reflect on Scripture, and at the end of that reflection time, they would issue forth a creed that was a summary statement of what the church believed. Do you know what one of the biggest debates in church history was? One of the biggest debates. Some of you are on the edge of your seat. What was it? It wasn't Jesus' skin color. It wasn't what language he preferred to speak. It wasn't what kind of pita bread he liked to eat. How leather were his sandals. It wasn't any, you know what? The, one of the biggest debates was, was Jesus Fully human. Oh, that was debated a lot because people were uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus could be fully human because they were uncomfortable with the idea of deity coming so close to broken humanity. There was this idea that anything that was fleshly, earthly was inherently evil. And so if God were to come so close where you couldn't differentiate where God 
God as God and God as man, where those lines were crossed, people were really, really uncomfortable. And so by and large, they didn't tend to de-emphasize the deity of Jesus. A lot of people tended to de-emphasize the humanity of Jesus. That's interesting. But it makes sense. Because it's easy to identify Jesus as God when you see his miracles, when you see the things he did on earth that were otherworldly, when you see that he rose from the dead. But it's hard to identify him as fully human unless we actually look just as closely, not, as, not just at the miracles or the empty tomb, but if we look just as closely as at the ordinary things. Do you know that Jesus had ordinary moments in his life? Do you know that he had a fully human experience? Yes, he raised the dead. Yes, he did miracles. But Jesus, his life was fully human. And the reason why celebrating and acknowledging the resurrection is important in celebrating and acknowledging the incarnation is this. If we believe that he had a full bodily resurrection, then we are also saying that he had a full bodily incarnation. That he was born fully human, and at the end of his life, he died as fully God, fully human. And when he rose from the dead, it was a fully human body. And you say, wow, that is really interesting, but up here, what does that have to do with my everyday life? I'm so glad you asked. Let's dig into what does this mean for us. Number one, Advent season is an opportunity for us to recognize the full humanity of Jesus. That sounds opposite on some levels. Like, wait, aren't we celebrating God in this season? God, be Yes, we are, but we're celebrating God becoming fully human. And when we celebrate the full humanity of Jesus, there's a word for us, a truth that transforms us if we really pause and reflect on this. Number one, if Jesus was fully human, that means that he had a human body with all the limitations that come with it. Jesus couldn't be at two places at once. Jesus needed sleep. He needed food. Jesus felt cold. He felt warm. Wrap your mind around the living God, God eternal who exists outside of time because time was created by him. He enters into his own creation and for the first time, he knows what it feels like to be tired. He felt things that we feel. He felt rejected. He felt loved. He felt recognized. He felt affirmed. He had a full human experience. And one of the things that we know from Scripture, he laughed often. But he also cried. This season of life, this season of the year, Advent, pulls us in to acknowledge the full humanity of Jesus in all its beauty and complexity. This is a season of life where we say, he didn't just die for you, he lived for you. And all of the life he lived speaks to us. 
Jesus laughed and he cried. Jesus was tempted. Jesus had family. Jesus had challenging friends. Look at the list of the disciples. Did you see the people that Jesus hung out with? They were far from perfect. One day Peter cut somebody's ear off. You imagine? Y'all have any friends that just cut people's ears off? Hopefully not. Um, Jesus had friends uh, in Simon the Zealot. He was an activist, probably wanted to tear down the government. Um, Jesus had tax collectors amongst his friends. These were people that were hated, considered to be vile. Jesus hung out with the worst of the worst of society. People that Jesus hung out with made people question who Jesus was. Said, could this really be the Messiah? He hangs out with some sketchy people. He lived a full human experience. And why it's important to acknowledge that is because so often when it comes to the life of Jesus, we as followers of Jesus, we do a lot of celebrating, but we do very little imitating. We celebrate his life, but we do very little imitation of his life. And so if this is a season in the Christian calendar where we celebrate the humanity of Jesus, the question I want to propose to you is what does it look like for you to fully live into your human self, to not deny your humanity, that to take cues from Jesus and say, he lived a fully human life and that cues me, invites me to live a fully human life just as he did and if that is the invitation from God, where am I not living a fully human life? Where am I denying some of my own humanity? Where am I denying some of my limitations? Where am I acting like I could be in all places at all times? Where am I denying the need to rest? Where am I denying my experience of rejection or temptation? One of the ways that you and I don't live fully human lives is that we dismiss and reject the reality of what we're going through. We deny the, the limitations we have. We deny the experiences that have impacted us. But what if this is a season that if we're acknowledging the full humanity of Jesus and by extension we're invited to acknowledge the full humanity of ourselves, then maybe this is a time of year that we're not just having eggnog, we're not just gathering around the tree, but we are pausing and saying, I'm tired. I'm hurting. Like Jesus, I've been rejected. Like Jesus, I'm being tempted. Like Jesus, I have some difficult relationships that I'm managing. I know that that won't trend well. That won't, like nobody wants to call a party and say, hey, come 2021 misery party. Let's come and let's hang out and let's share how miserable we are. That, people don't want to do that. We don't want to acknowledge it. We want to keep it moving. We want to suppress it, dismiss it. But if this is a season when we celebrate God becoming a full human being, then he didn't deny these things. What would it look like for you and I to no longer deny our humanity? Our weariness, our relational struggles, our rejections, our desire to laugh, our need to cry. What would it look like to no longer deny those things? See, when I look at Jesus' life, 
and our desire to be like Jesus, I'm moved. Because if our lives were to imitate his life, not just celebrate it, look what it could look like. Jesus' life was governed by truth. We live in a day and age where our lives are governed by our feelings, by social media trending, by headlines. But what if it could also, most importantly, at the end of the day, be governed by truth? Truth that filters all of these things. Truth that anchors us in the seas of change. We look at the life of Jesus. He was rooted relationally. I I mentioned all of the relational struggles that Jesus had, yet he was in relationship with those people day in and day out for three and a half years. I know folks that struggle to have relationships in the church, and we're talking about at most maybe 90 minutes a week for them. They looked at me funny when we sat down, (laughs) you know, things like that. I don't mean to diminish that. Don't look at people funny. However, Jesus was with people three and a half years in relationship, rooted. He didn't cut people off. He didn't ghost them. He stayed present with people that I would have understood if he would have said, nah, this is too much for me. But we see in his life, he also lived with the marginalized. And it's an amazing sight to see Jesus, who could have been the most popular person at his time, he could have wined and dined with the elite, with the powerful, because of who he was and what he did, yet he chose to intentionally be with the powerless, the forgotten, the outcast. He had this supernaturally empowered life. Everywhere Jesus went, he was just Naturally supernatural, the Holy Spirit empowered him. We saw signs and wonders and miracles and incredible heavenly things were just emanating from his life. And he did all of this in the package of an experience that was remarkably unhurried. Jesus was never in a rush. If there's one attribute I need to imitate more than celebrate, it's that one, no? Can, you, can I get an amen from anybody? He was unhurried, never in a rush. He would have stood out in New York like a sore thumb, unhurried. But if there's one common connection point that I think we don't celebrate enough, we don't imitate enough, we don't pause long enough, we don't let this season orient us to affirm this reality, to no longer deny it, to realize that to deny this aspect of our experience is to deny that Jesus had this aspect of his experience, and to acknowledge this aspect of our life is to acknowledge that Jesus had this active in his life, and what I'm referring to is temptation. Temptation and the humanity of Jesus. Look at what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says. It refers to Jesus as a high priest, and the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Had this conversation recently with our kids. Um, They have many friends that 
uh, are part of the Catholic Church. And so we, uh, often they ask questions, hey, Dad, what do we believe and what do they believe? And what are the differences? We have really great conversations. And so one of them uh, came to me and said, hey, Dad, was Mary sinless? I said, why do you ask that? I said, well, because that's what some of my friends believe, that she was sinless. And that's why uh, Jesus was born through her. I said, well, if we look at Scripture, what does Scripture say about who's sinless? And, and it was interesting. It was a nine-year-old brain. said, from what I understand of Scripture, only one person is sinless. That would be God. I said, okay, yeah. So then if we say that Mary is sinless, what would we be elevating her? Oh, yeah, we, then we would be saying she would be like God. It's like, so then, then that can't be... We can't reconcile that with Scripture, right? It's like, yeah, no, we can't. I said, but here's what's interesting. You know, what we could say about Jesus and us is that even though Jesus was fully God, and even though he didn't sin, he was tempted. I said, wait a second, Jesus was tempted like me? I said, yes. And so I was trying to translate. I said, you know when you get tempted to hit your brother upside the head? You know, Jesus is with you in those moments. Now, the difference between you and Jesus is that Jesus wouldn't hit your brother on the head. You sometimes do. So we, Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. We're tempted and we sin. But when we're tempted, at the moment of temptation, think of a temptation you had this past week. Whatever it was, you were tempted to lie, tempted to boast, tempted to be selfish, tempted to be unforgiving. All of the, whatever area, the scripture says Jesus was tempted just like we are. Every single temptation that you and I experience, Jesus experienced. I hope this frees you and, and lifts a burden because some of us feel guilty because we're tempted. But to be tempted is not sinful because Jesus was tempted and he didn't sin. I, that should make you feel at least 5% better about yourself. That when you walk around today, this week, when you're tempted, you are sharing an experience that Jesus had. He was tempted just like us. And if we're affirming his humanity, and by affirming his humanity during this season invites us to affirm our own humanity, one of the ways that we could stop denying our humanity is to stop lying about our temptations. To be honest about the fact that we're tempted to be honest first and foremost with God. To be honest with close friends, trusted friends. To be honest with ourselves. How much energy do we waste emotionally just denying the reality that's underneath the hood? How much better would we spend our time in no longer denying our temptations, but actually meeting with God in the midst of our temptation? You know, I remember <clears throat> I had a friend of mine that shared that they often struggle to have, like, tense conversations or to be fully truthful because they were always afraid after being truthful that the relationship would change. And so what did that person do? They endured really uncomfortable, unnecessary things in a relationship. And so they, they, if they were constantly offended, they said nothing. If they went to go meet with friends and the friends were late and kept them waiting, they said nothing. 
Um, if they were forgotten when they should have been remembered, they said nothing. And so all in all, they're continuing this relationship, but yet they're hurt, they're wounded, and they're saying nothing because they're afraid that if they're honest, the relationship would change. And I think on some levels, there's an equal struggle in our lives and that sometimes I think we're afraid to be honest with God because we think the relationship will change. We think if we're honest with God and tell him about the things we're tempted with and be honest with them and acknowledge them and no longer deny them and bring them to him and face them with him, we think he will pack up and run. But the beauty of the gospel and this idea of being fully human is this in that the gospel declares to us that our relationship with God doesn't hinge on your perfection or mine. It rests upon the perfection, the beauty, the perfect obedience of Jesus. And because of that rock-solid, never-shaking foundation of relationship that we stand on, it empowers us to be fully honest. One of the ways you know that you believe that God loves you unconditionally is that you are truthful without reservation. The more true you can be about what's happening in your soul, in your own humanity, the more fully you actually believe that you are unconditionally loved. Because you know at the end of this truthful revelation, his relationship with me will not change. He will love me before this moment. He will love me during it. And he will love me after. He won't blink. As the worship team comes forward, I want to invite us to consider this question of celebration and imitation. What aspects of the humanity of Jesus do you and I need to do a better job at celebrating? Maybe we need to celebrate the way he lived with the marginalized. Maybe we need to celebrate more how he was rooted relationally, how he was governed by truth, how he had this supernaturally empowered life. He lived an unhurried life. Maybe we need to celebrate those things more. But in addition, what aspects of Jesus' humanity is he inviting us to imitate? To not just celebrate up here, but to actually imitate, to embody, to walk out, to incorporate into our lives. And that first combination of celebration and imitation that I want to invite us into is to be honest about our temptations. And to learn to meet God in that space of temptation. And what empowers us to do that? The gospel. The cross, the empty tomb, the finished work of Jesus that says, I will never stop loving you. As, we, as I invite us to stand, at this time as we prepare to close our service, I can't think of a more powerful way to celebrate, to declare our belief in the gospel than for us to have communion together. Hopefully everyone received a cup when you came in. If you did not, would you be so kind just to raise your hand real quick and someone will come by and bring you a cup.
And as we're opening the cup, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, where the Apostle Paul speaks of this very act that we're about to partake in. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. With the bread in hand, let me pray for us. And then I'm going to invite us to receive and partake. Lord Jesus, we thank you that during this season we celebrate your full humanity. You were fully human. And at this moment we celebrate your broken body that was broken for us. That in that breaking there's healing for us. So we thank you that by your stripes we are made whole. And we receive your brokenness for our healing. In Jesus' name, let's partake of the bread. If we can open the cup. Verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, in the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you, not only for your broken body, but for your shed blood. That in that atoning sacrifice, we are made whole. Our guilt and shame is washed away. We stand in a righteousness that is not our own. We stand in your righteousness and your perfect obedience. And you extend to us your grace, your forgiveness. Your sacrifice has made us alive. We were once dead, now we are alive. And we thank you for your transformative love. Let's take the cup at this time. I invite us to worship the living God at this time. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, for your sacrifice, for your mercy, for your grace. Oh, for your unending love. As we respond to God in these next few moments in song and in worship, I want to remind you the prayer team is in the back to my left, to your right. At any given moment, you could slip out of your seat and they would be back there ready to pray for you for anything that you're journeying with that's come up for you, anything in response to the sermon. They would love to pray with you. Let's worship God together in these next few moments.